about the, the event coming up. Then we'll go from there. All right. So today we are in Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, but before we jump into Nehemiah chapter 8, I wanted you to, to meet our 2015 baptism class from Truvine from both of our campuses. You can go ahead. Yeah, put your hands together. So I'm glad you guys are here. Most of you guys uh, made it back to church the next day. That was one of the baptism questions. Uh, so it was a pleasure. How many of you guys put your hand by a show of hands went to our picnic yesterday? Okay, that's a, that's a majority of you. Did we have a good time? All right. You guys ready to go back next year? I think we, it could have been maybe just a little bit longer, right? Uh, and kayaking and all. Guess what? I caught a fish. Only my second fish ever. All right. All right. A, a pickerel. I don't even know what that is. But that's what they said I caught. So it has a lot of teeth. Yes, that's right. Let me just pray real quick. And I want to just get right into this word. Um, and then we'll go from there. Jesus, you are good. And your love endures forever. And Lord, I'm just blown away this morning again by your love for us, Lord. Would you remind us that you love us? Would you teach us for the first time that you love us? Would you allow us to engage even that word love for us? Uh, for many of us, we, we don't really know what that looks like, Lord. So we thank you that you're a God who, um, who's always on time, Lord, and whose message um, is always one of, of love, Lord. Even if it brings correction, Lord, it's guided by love. Um, and that you're a good dad. You're a good father. Lord, I pray, Lord, um, for everyone that is within uh, the sound of my voice, Lord, that um, you would anoint us that you would anoint them, Lord, um, freshly to hear from you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would speak to me and speak through me clearly, Lord. Uh, keep my lips from error, Lord. Guide our hearts, Lord, um, as we engage your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, if you're here for the first time, we're in the middle of a Nehemiah series, and, and you probably um, already know where we're at. We're... Uh, if you're from Truvon, you probably already know where we're at. But we're in, in Nehemiah 8. We're in the second part of Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah was an Israelite who was in captivity um, and, and who was in exile. But somehow, after a couple hundred years, he had risen to be in the king's court. Uh, and he was really one of the highest men in all of the land um, when he was uh, serving under King Artaxerxes, uh, who was the ruler of the entire world, the known world at that time. Um, very feared man. Um, and uh, he heard that Jerusalem was in shambles, that the uh, walls of Jerusalem were all broken down. He went to Jerusalem and um, after getting permission from the king to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But that wasn't without a bunch of opposition. He faced opposition along the way by uh, guys that lived there and had power there, uh, Tobias and Sambalot and um, uh, Geshem the Arab. Uh, and um, at this point of the book, they've already rebuilt the walls, but they're starting to rebuild uh, the structure of worship and they're starting to rebuild the people because the city is not just the structures, but the city is the people that live within the structures. Amen. All right. Uh, and so this is kind of where we pick up. 
So the first half of the book is done. They've already rebuilt the walls uh, and there's, they, they've been beefing with the local authorities, um, even though he had uh, permission to rebuild by the king himself because he was messing up their status quo. He was messing up their status quo. And so by chapter eight, we start seeing that the people put first uh, the things of the Lord and that things are starting to shape up. Let me just review what we did last week um, and talk about the distinction of Nehemiah's and Ezra's revival. So we saw in last week that that one of the distinctions was that there was a unity and hunger among the people, that the people prioritized the word of God, that the word of God was accessible to both male and female and people that were hungry and thirsty for the word of God, that the people were hungry and willing to sacrifice in order to learn the word of God. Uh, I I made a pause last week to say that no one should be more uh, interested in your spiritual growth than yourself, not your spouse, uh, not your pastor, not your leader, not your small group leader, right? Not uh, your TV pastor, right? Um, But you should take stock in your own spiritual growth and no one should be more interested in your own spiritual growth than yourself. That the people honored the word of God, that the leadership accomplished ministry together, right? And I kind of made a shameless plug to um, uh, get more volunteers in action here at the church, right? That this was a year and is a year of uh, leadership development and leadership in the kingdom of God looks like servanthood, right? It's not just whoever carries the microphone the most, but it's who is willing to serve and who is willing to die and who's willing to rearrange their schedules in ways that may be uncomfortable for them, but that it serves the kingdom of God. Amen? Make adjustments. All right? We also saw that leadership, that the leadership reminded the people to remember the poor and that the people remembered the poor in the middle of uh, the revival, that the revival was not just about me growing spiritually, but it was also about us going out and engaging those who knew very little or nothing about the scriptures and blessing them, finding a way to be a blessing to, to, to the down and out, to the disenfranchised, to those who were on the margins. And lastly, that the people were fully engaged spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and physically. And we saw that in uh, Nehemiah 8, verses 2, 3, 6, and 8 to 12. The people were so engaged that the Levites, the teachers, and those who worked in the temple had to tell them, calm down, calm down, right? When I, uh, a couple of months ago, when I outlined this book, I, I titled today's talk, Turn Down, Turn Down for What? After the, you know, the song I saw on the radio. Maybe that's a year ago the song was on the radio. Um, But the people had to be told to calm down. I wish for the day that our people have to be told, calm down, calm down, you're getting too engaged. Right? But today I want to talk a little bit about a couple of reasons um, why sometimes we lose our motivation for worship. You ever been there? Or you lose your motivation for worship. You get to the house of the Lord and you're like, oh, man, I'm just, you know, that's what we do on Sundays. I don't know what else to do. Right. The crossword puzzle is too hard. You know, TV on Sunday mornings is not that good. Uh, 
You know, you don't come here for the coffee, right? Or even in your own time at home, uh, sometimes it's hard to break open the Bible or it's open. You know, the K-Love seems stale. They play the same song every five songs. You know, anybody been there? Okay, you can talk back to me, all right? And so it's like, ah, right? So I have a couple of... Uh, this, this is not all-inclusive, but there's a couple of suggestions um, why I think that sometimes we lose our motivation for worship. And um, I want to share those with you this morning from Scripture. And I, I want you to see where I gra- grab those from. So sometimes we lose our motivation for worship because we allow our cultural preferences to get into the way. All right? That's one of the reasons. Sometimes, you know, we allow our cultural preference to get into the way of us fully engaging in worship. Sometimes we just don't understand, why do I need to worship? What does worship have to do with my life? Why should I, who is this God? You may or may not know about the God that we worship. Another reason is that we lose our perspective of the reason that we ought to worship. Perhaps sometimes we're engaged in spiritual warfare, right? And, and so things are happening and we have no, you know, we don't really know why they're happening, but we can't really put our finger on them. And we know that in the spirit realm, things are happening that are keeping us from fully engaging in worship. Let me read uh, an excerpt from Nehemiah chapter 8. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, and he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively, somebody say attentively, to the book of the law. Ezra praised the Lord, the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen and Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. The Levites, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabat, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the, Lord, to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Could you say that with me? The joy of the Lord is your strength. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it. Sukkot like this, and their joy was very great. So this is where we're at. They, they decide to put uh, the worship of our God, of their God, to make it the first thing that they did in their civic calendar. Right. So imagine January 1st. And and so the priest and everybody says, hold on, this is going to be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm translating it to 2015 for us. A, a, a new year, a January 1st, unlike any other. 
We're going to read the Word of God from the time that the sun comes up until the afternoon. Everyone's going to stand, and we're going to honor the Word of God. And the Bible here says that this had not been a practice since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. It had been many generations since they had made this big of a deal about honoring the word of the Lord. In fact, the the folks had um, not done this since they had really been one generation away from being freed from captivity from the hands of Pharaoh. It was a big deal. And so when the priest and Ezra and the Levites began to read from what was more than likely Deuteronomy, the book of the law, which is uh, the Ten Commandments expounded upon, the people of God, I can only imagine them remembering their ancestors and remembering them leaving the captivity of Egypt. And remembering the great stories of old that people told. And, and, and the Lord sent gnats. And then he turned the river into blood. And, and, and one time everybody was thirsty and Moses got water from a rock. And everyone was tired of eating what we were eating. And the Lord somehow provided meat. And so they were, they were telling these stories. And as they were remembering these things, their collective memory was being stirred. And as Ezra takes the podium, the priest, the people cannot just be stiff and still because they know too much. They now remember again things that they probably hadn't thought about for a really long time. The things that are in the book of the law are starting to make sense to them. They're starting to connect the dots. And so their hands shoot up. And as Ezra reads the book of the law, they're saying, Amen! Amen! And the text isn't clear but they say that they fall prostrate, they bow down and worship the Lord. A gesture fit for a king. I don't know if you know any Jewish people. I grew up on Long Island. There's a lot of Jewish people on Long Island. All right? Uh, My mom's worked for tons of Jewish families. There was a phase in the 90s where Pentecostals thought they were Jewish. And uh, we would do, you know, Hava, Nagila, Hava. And and we would, uh, you know, we swore we were Jewish. Ecuadorians and Salvadorians, Guatemalans. Not that there aren't Jews who are Ecuadorians, Salvadorians, and Guatemalans. But Jewish people are a people of celebration. You know, there are seven feasts in the Jewish calendar. The Lord made it clear, you are not only going to fast, but you are going to feast. 
And it was almost as if their, if their default was to be fasting and downtrodden and self-effacing uh, and, and guilt-ridden. Because you see later on in the text that uh, the Levites have to tell them, wait, 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 this is not a time for grief. This is a time for joy. If you remember correctly, if you were here last week, the Day of Atonement had just happened. One day a year, the high priest in, uh, in Jewish tradition would enter and make a sacrifice for the entire people. He would first make a sacrifice for himself. It was the, the most high holy day in all of the land. In fact, people traveled from all over the place just to be able to, to be there. It was called the Day of Atonement. And it was such a holy thing. And the high priest, the highest of all priests, would stand before mighty God that there was a rope that was tied around his ankles. And I mentioned this before. And there was a little bell. And if he wasn't correct with the Lord, that bell would stop dinging. Right? If that bell would stop dinging, it meant that it was lights out for him. And so he would stand before the Holy of Holies and they would, the other priests would pull him out with that rope. They're like, oh man, that's not the one. And then all the priests shook and they're like, we need to be right before the Lord. And they cast lots. So it wasn't like, hey, you take a year off. I'll, I'll be holy this year so that you, like all of the priests had to have it all together. And then once a year, the, 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 the high priest would enter. And he would make a sacrifice for all of the people. And this had just happened when, when, when this passage is, is being um, uh, read right now. So basically, it was a gospel message. They had just uh, once again been told that their sins had been forgiven, that, a blood, that blood had been shed, and that they were pardoned, that they were free. But they were still stuck in their sins, right? They were still stuck there, and they had not yet received that forgiveness. And so the priests and the Levites have to tell them, wait, 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 no, no, no. This is a time for celebration. Jewish people were like, wait, this is a time for celebration. Well, then let's celebrate, right? So the Lord is doing some really cool stuff here. The people are responding well. But yet, I wonder, right, do we respond? Well, to, to when the Lord moves in our lives and or do we sometimes allow um, our cultural preferences to get in the way? If something like this were to break out, people shouting, amen, amen, amen. And sometimes that happens here. And people before the Lord, what would our first thoughts be? wonder what's happening there. Or would you join them? Say, hey, man, amen, amen. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son on the cross, right? Or is there some sort of stop where you say, well, you know, Lord, this is as comfortable as I feel. 
I think that one of the challenges of uh, engaging the Lord in a multicultural setting is that we have to overcome some of those things, right? I think we've said this thing from the beginning here at Truvine. There's no like predominant worship style. And sometimes I'm like, oh man, there's no predominant worship style. But sometimes I'm like really happy that we're, that we're wrestling through that and that you guys are still here and that you're wrestling that out. And are you tracking with me? But I wonder, you know, is there more, right? Is there more for us to, to, is there a deeper place that we can go in our worship where we get beyond our cultural preferences, right? I read something earlier, and I'm just going to point this out to you for us to wrestle through it together. Um, This is where we see it. This is where I ground this in Scripture. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands. Amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There's a guy named uh, Coriel Edwards who wrote this book called The Elusive Dream, The Power of Race in Interracial Churches. He says, churches have historically... Now, let me, let me build a, a, a thing here. Uh, there are a lot of churches um, that are either black or white or Hispanic or Asian. And I love that our church is a multicultural church. And, and we wrestle through this Sunday after Sunday, whether or not we talk about it. Right? But I'm going to talk about it. Let's talk about it. Right? And... And just let me preface this. I'm, I'm not black or white, right? I'm Hispanic, so I'm somewhere in the middle, right? And there are parts of me who can identify uh, with the black experience. There are parts of me who can identify with the Hispanic experience. And there's parts of everyone who can identify. There are places where we're all, there's, there's something shared there. But I love the words that uh, Corey Edwards puts here. And sometimes... Um, I've been in settings where my black brothers and sisters have been a little bit like, oh, I don't feel comfortable here. This is not ch- church the way I'm used to, right? Or my white brothers and sisters like, what's happening here? I'm not used to what's happening. Uh, get me out of here real quick, right? Or my Hispanic brothers and sisters make judgments of, you know, we're really judgmental people, right? Of, of everybody, right? So it's like, ah. Uh, These people do like this. These people don't have any flavor. These people, you know, it's like, what's happening? How are people really engaging the Lord? All right, let me just build kind of a box for us, right? And so I love the words that that Corey Edwards puts here. And and he does talk about the black and white experience. But I want us to wrestle with this for a little bit, right? Don't just dismiss it, right? Because this is something that as a congregation... We have to wrestle. And as a city, we have to wrestle through. Philadelphia is a plurality black city. All right? And if we're going to engage our context, we need to be sensitive and not just sensitive, but aware more than even sensitive, right? Because we're sensitive primarily to what the Lord is doing, but aware to what's happening around us, right? Um, and let me, let me say this out here right now. The Lord does not love black people more than he loves white people. White people more than he loves red people. Red people more than he loves brown people. The Lord loves people. And the the reason why the Lord loves cities is because they're densely populated, right? And help, just bear with me 
and, and, and let's wrestle through this together. Churches have historically been places where blacks could share feelings and emotions they, they may have suppressed elsewhere. Shouting, so shouting is a, is a form of dancing, of worship, of engaging the Lord. Sometimes you see folks clapping and, and, and stomping almost at the same time. Right. For some people, that's scary. For some people, that's beautiful. For some people, it's a way to get, you know, you're burning some calories at church and you're fully engaged. It's a full contact sport. All right. Shouting was one of the these ways of expressing these emotions. Africans-Americans at Crosstown. So this is a, a case study. The church that he's talking about worship represented a mixed church that he's talking about. Worship represented more than just a time for people to connect with God, but also a space where freedom and opportunity could be celebrated. The church was a place where people should be able to decompress and express themselves without restraint. So this is for the black community. White attendees at Crosstown at the same church, even the younger attendees who supported effusive worship, did not express this idea of worship. Rather, the foremost objective of worship for whites was to facilitate congregates meeting with God. Not bad. Worship. So in addition to having different understandings about what defined normative worship, African-Americans and white differed on what they believed the purpose of worship was to be. We can't dismiss our cultural upbringings when we come to Sunday morning. And we can't say, hey, man, you know, we're just going to get along and everything that um, we do as a family, yeah, we're the family of Jesus, it's just going to come easy because it's not, right? And I wonder if, as a, I wonder what it would look like for us on Sunday morning to have what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 8. For our white brothers and sisters, our black brothers and sisters, the, the, the Hispanics that we have all together in unison shouting, amen, amen, before the throne of God, our faces before the Lord, and, 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 and some people shouting, some people in their seats, some people's on their knees as, as they're led by the Lord, but, but it's the spirit of the Lord guiding all of that, and not judgmentalism, and emotionalism, or any other ism but that people understand that people worship differently and that our cultural upbringings in, you know, matter, right? And so I think if we move forward as a community that's trying to be multicultural, right? Because diverse we already are, right? The presence of people from different places, it's what makes us diverse, right? But we're yearning for a multicultural where we honor other people's culture and we don't dilute our own, right? Where we say, you know what? The Lord chose to make me an Ecuadorian who speaks Spanglish, who eats rice and beans, right? But who has an amazing appreciation for soul food. All right? That's right. And I wear plaid. And I wear Birkenstocks, too. Right? And I drive a Subaru with no rims on it. Right? But that's okay. Right? I think as a congregation, right, we need to wrestle through these things and say, hey, God, when we come to Sunday morning to worship, be free. Be free. My heart would jump on Sunday mornings, where we would just say, hey, man, 
see Scott just worshiping the Lord the way God created him. You know, see you, Tom, just worshiping the Lord the way God created you. You know, and then all of us are just doing our own thing. And it's not about what's happening around us, but but we respond to the mercy of the Lord. We respond to the worship of the Lord. And in unison, sometimes would say, amen, amen. Thank you, Jesus, because of what you did for us. You know, when we get to heaven, I don't really know what it's going to sound like or look like. But Revelation makes it clear that it is a very multicultural place, that every tongue, tribe, and nation. He doesn't say there's a new race. That's not what the text says. The text says that every tongue, tribe, and nation, ethnos, will be represented. And I wonder if our cultural stuff will be there in a sanctified form. And we'll have swayers. And we'll have shouters. And we'll have people that say this. But I think one thing that transfer over all cultures, everyone can say, amen, amen, amen. I don't suggest that it will be easy for us to come up with a, a way to do Sunday mornings in a more cult, multicultural sense. I think we have a, uh, a great start. I think we have uh, a great team to pick from. I think our, our people are going to start growing and, and, and more and more people are going to become more tolerant. You know, the Lord is sanctifying that part of our country. All the race stuff that's happening right now. The Lord is st- starting to show up and say, hey, man, there are parts of our hearts that are really dark. And it's actually getting in the way of our worship. And Jesus is like, no more. Nothing can get in the way of my worship because I want unadulterated worship. And if there's the presence of uh, diversity in a community and a church is drawing from that diversity, well, let's worship in multicultural ways. And let's not on Sunday mornings allow our cultural preference to get in the way of worship. Amen? The next one was that we do not understand. It's clear, Nehemiah 8 verse 8 says that they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. Finally, it wasn't just stories that mom told me about church. Finally, it wasn't just grandma's around the fire tales, right? But finally, somebody was taking time to do some, what preachers would call, expository preaching. They're breaking it down word for word, right? Drawing out the Greek, drawing out the the Hebrew, drawing out the cultural nuances, and saying, this is why this matters, this is why this is real. And people are beginning to understand. And sometimes we don't worship just because we don't understand. Why does Jesus dying on the cross matter? That happened 2,000 years ago. What does that have to do with me? Right? I'm a good person. Right? I'll get into heaven, right? That's how that works. No, that's not how that works. Scriptures are clear. It says that uh, no one is good, not even one. 
And if you think yourself good, if I think myself good, then I'm off. Because the Lord knows very clearly the darkness of our hearts and very clearly the, our proclivity to, to, to sin. And even the thoughts that we think, the murderous thoughts, right, of others. Let somebody cross you off as you're trying to get home on Roosevelt Boulevard. See if your old nature doesn't pop up. I wish somebody would cross me when I'm trying, right? Get home on Roosevelt Boulevard. I try to stay off Roosevelt Boulevard, as you say. I try to avoid it too, but it's, it's hard around these parts. But we don't understand why. And the reality was, you know, just a brief, that our ancestors gave up their right to be close to God. Adam and Eve sinned, and there was a huge uh, chasm that was created that no amount of good works and good deeds could close. There was no bridge, no amount of tithing, and watching T.D. Jakes on television and giving money to televangelists could cross. Right? No amount of good deeds and feeding homeless people. I love all feeding homeless people, right? And clothing the naked and, and feeding the hungry. I'm all for that. You guys know that. That we could not earn our way back to the Father's heart. But that there needed to be blood shed on our behalf in order for us to be reconnected to the Father. And that Jesus willingly gave his blood. He died a death he did not deserve to give us a life that we never earned. He paid a debt he did not owe because we could never pay it. That's the gospel, right? Let me throw a little bit of theology in there just so you can... That's called the, the, the substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement. Of Jesus. He took our place on the cross. That should have been me. It should have been me. Right? And so we worship. We worship. And sometimes we don't understand that it maybe should have been us. That it should have been us who had taken uh, the place of Jesus. But Jesus willingly gave his life for us. Are you tracking with me? You don't deserve to be saved. I mess up every single day. My heart still has some very dark places. I think some thoughts that are not of the Lord sometimes. But he's not giving up on me. He's not through with me. And he calls me every single day. He says, you're mine. I have a plan for your life. You're anointed and you're forgiven. Forgive yourself. You know, some, I should have thrown this up there. And sometimes we don't understand that we're forgiven. And so that's why we don't worship. So we keep reminding ourselves of the sins of our past. And so that keeps us from fully entering the throne of God. The Bible says that um, if we sin, when we sin, we have an advocate. Someone that goes before us, Jesus Christ himself, before the throne of God. So we can approach the throne of God boldly. If we've taken by grace and by faith, The free gift of salvation that's in Jesus. 
And once we've come to understand that, I think we can live a life of worship. Because I think sometimes we forget, like, that it really cost him everything. That it cost Jesus everything. That he paid the highest of prices. And so, like the ten lepers, we become like the nine who never come back to say thank you. Who never come back. Amen? You ought to be like that one and say, God, you know what? I'm grateful to be alive. And I don't have it all together, but I'm not where I used to be. And you are a good God. And, and, and I love you. Please help me be more and more like you today. And, and say amen to when you agree to something and fall prostrate before the Lord when it's time to worship him. Be fully engaged. Another reason is that we lose our perspective. You know? Before I jump to that, it says, I love this quote here. It says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship. There's a lot of people out there that don't worship because they don't understand. They don't know. And so our job as believers is to do Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to go out and share the love of Christ with people. And that's the only reason why missions exist. While things like VBS exist. Because there are people out there, children out there, who do not know the gospel yet. And that's why that exists. And sometimes we lose our perspective. Verse 17b. It said, From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it, Sukkot like this, and their joy was very great. Sukkot was a holiday in the Jewish tradition um, where the Jews were called to make uh, tents speedily to remind them. It was almost like an object lesson, right, uh, of the times that their ancestors for 40 years lived in tents in the desert. And Sukkot took place in order to remind the people that God had their back. That God was looking out for them. And that the same God that looked out for their ancestors was going to look out for them. Amen? And so sometimes all these generations had happened and, and the people had lost their perspective. Wars had happened. Their families had um, been ravaged by, you know, a lot of different things and uh, external uh, people had come and, and they had intermarried and the stories were now somewhat hazy, pain. And folks were no longer engaging the scriptures and no longer engaging the God of the scriptures the way they once were. So, Sometimes uh, we lose our motivation for worship. Let me just backtrack here is because we allow our cultural preferences to get in the way. We do not understand why we worship. And sometimes we lose our perspective along the way. Does that ever happen to you? It's like, you know what? Why, why do I go to church on Sunday? Life is just really hard. Or church is not what I expected it to be. Church is becoming something I don't understand. You know, those leaders, they're not getting it right. You start getting critical. You start blaming the children's ministry person or the pastor. Or you start asking critical questions that are not maybe spirit-led, but you start saying, hey, 
making excuses for why you're not worshiping. Right? So sometimes we lose perspective. And lastly, a lot of times we're engaged in spiritual warfare. You know, the enemy of your soul does not want you to worship because breakthrough happens in worship. Things happen in worship. God releases his blessing, his anointing in worship. God releases healing in worship. God releases purpose in worship. And we see that in chapters 4 and 6. There's opposition to the building, to the rebuilding of the walls. There's further opposition in chapter 6. Tobias and Sambalot do not want this to happen. And there's some parallels there to spiritual warfare. But the Bible reassures us and reminds us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that we were created to worship. That is our main assignment, to minister uh, to the manifest presence of the Lord. And you know the Lord can visit you at home. You don't have to be here on Sunday morning for you to worship. The Lord can visit you in your car. You don't have to be here on Sunday morning to worship. The Lord can visit you on a walk, on a prayer walk. You don't have to be here on Sunday morning to worship. And so sometimes this happens. So a lot of times, you know, um, we lose our motivation for worship. You guys ever felt that way? But the Lord wants to bring all of that back. Because the Lord said to... um, to the people through Nehemiah, that the joy of the Lord is their strength. Amen? So what does that look like? Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some back to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm going to ask you guys to to stand up. I'm going to ask Courtney to come up. So what does that look like? How many of you guys can get a dose, need a dose of joy this morning? Amen. And not something that is made up, you know. And the Bible says the following. It says that our joy comes from knowing God. That our joy comes from knowing that we're in good hands. That our joy comes from knowing that we are not forgotten And that our joy comes from knowing that God has a plan even though we don't know everything. Amen? Amen. Let's just do the joy of the Lord as our strength. All right? We're going to sing the first song that we sang this morning. And um, Courtney's going to lead us. And I'm going to pray for you guys to, to just engage with the Lord. easy and I don't have to psych you up for this because Jesus already paid the price for your sins so just worship the Lord this morning right where you're at
Joy is supernatural. It's not something that we kind of make up. So we ask you, Lord, to just bring it over our community. Would it be known around uh, the neighborhood and the lower northeast and the surrounding areas that Truvine is a joyful house? That the spirit of joy rests here? That we don't have it all together? That we're not the best preachers and have the best band? But that we know that our God is good and we will praise Him with everything we've got. That we will worship Him with everything we've got. And that we will face the giants in the power of your spirit. And we will face adversity in your power, Lord. And that our joy will not dismay. In the name of Jesus, make us joyful ones. People that trust in you, Lord. Even when everything seems bleak. When bad news come, that we rejoice in you, Lord, knowing that you will make a way out of nowhere. Because that is in your character. Because that's in the story that is in the Bible and that, that's what we've heard. That you will not dismay. That you will not leave us alone. That you will never leave us or forsake us. wrap up Lord I just bless the offering I bless the, the hearts of folks who will give today and who will allow this ministry to move forward Lord Lord multiply your blessing Lord be with them Lord now may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he would take you. May he guide you through the wilderness and keep you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Amen.